The hardest part about being deployed is not even really saying goodbye. For me, when I was overseas, what I tried to do was forget that I had a family, forget that I had anything other than the guys around me on that day-to-day mission. Because I found that if I was focused on my family and thinking, gosh, I got another nine months to go, it just made things so much harder. You start losing focus over there and it makes your tour longer. The hardest thing for me on deployments is when a mission doesn't go right, when it goes bad. By go bad, you may actually succeed in the mission, but that buddy gets wounded or dies. That's hard because you know everything about that guy. Probably drink beer with him. You know his family's history, wife's name, his kids' names. You might have even met them. That's the hardest thing. Staff Sergeant Carter Chick, United States Marine Corps, Army veteran as well. Veteran of Iraq, veteran of Somalia. Multiple times over. A personal hero of mine. One of my best friends from my unit. What does Memorial Day mean to me? About a year... Well, a year and a half, I think, after uh, I did a project on Carter Trick. It was one of my first four capstone projects. Uh, he unfortunately committed suicide. And that reality was a harsh one. And I remember hearing from his wife for the first time after. And although it was really difficult, I don't, I don't remember crying. I remember wondering when those tears would come. I just remember kind of feeling in a state of shock, like I was having an out-of-body experience in some way. And that part of it was the hardest to cope with. The man that I had seen as such a mighty, strong warrior, one of my squad leaders, was suddenly not with us anymore, suddenly unable to cope with not being the soldier or the Marine that he used to be. And in that time of being out, he felt a shell of himself. And I'll speak on that only because he told me that many times. He felt as though he had nothing left to contribute to society. A man that mighty, that strong, when he feels that way when he gets back and gets out of the military. I don't know where that happened at, and I can't speak on that because I don't really know the details of how he got there. But I do know he struggled mightily upon leaving. You know, I I sat there last night, uh, power went out in San Antonio. Uh, We had a tornado warning, which is really weird for San Antonio. We don't really get tornadoes down here. But I was thinking a little bit about what Memorial Day meant to me. And I thought, man, you know what? Somebody had messaged me earlier from uh, my account. A friend of mine actually had messaged me and asked what I was doing for Memorial Day. Asked if I was putting out a podcast. And admittedly, I had, of course, in in typical Tim fashion, I had nothing planned uh, because I just hadn't really, I, I guess I didn't want to be kind of cliche in a way. I just wanted to keep things on schedule with the project and the podcast and just let Memorial Day happen as it unfolded and put out my normal amount of quotes. But when he asked me that question, I was kind of struck by it and thought, why am I not doing something for Memorial Day? So, of course, in the last minute harebrained idea, decided, well, I should probably release a podcast tomorrow. 
and I should probably just do it early and release it tomorrow. So I had the idea. I was between a couple of podcasts, actually. Uh, I think it was Jeff Gonzalez, Navy SEAL, and then Johnny uh, Telerico, who uh, was a Vietnam door gunner. And I kind of settled on the Vietnam door gunner idea because I felt that those men weren't memorialized enough. But, um, and I really know that they got the short end of the stick. I was sitting in my car, the power went out. I was trying to get a charge for my phone because obviously I had no backup power, terrible planning. Um, and I was in my car charging my phone as my phone came back on. I texted my president, Blake, and let him know my plans. And he said to me, uh, I like that idea, but why can't we just release that one on Wednesday? Why can't you do a special tribute on Monday of your memories and your thoughts on Memorial Day? And I thought, uh, I don't know that anybody wants to hear that. <laughs> but then I texted my buddy Nate Boyer and I said, what would you rather hear? A Vietnam tribute, um, the Vietnam veteran podcast or my thoughts and and uh, Memorial Day tribute to the men that I hold dear in some of those memories. He said, I'd rather hear you speak on it, honestly, because that's what Memorial Day is all about. It's about honoring those who uh, have since passed. So, here we are. And I wanted to stress to the listener that this is very conversational. I did not take a lot of time to put this together. Uh, this was not curated over months. Uh, this is not anything that I've taken vast amounts of time to put together so it is what it is and it is what you're hearing so hopefully that's good enough but really I just think more than anything I needed to talk about some of the best memories that I've had in covering this project and I wanted to start off with Staff Sergeant and I wanted to start off with Staff Sergeant Carter Chick because he was my best friend uh, from a unit and a leader, a hero, and a mentor that I respected so greatly. Uh, he'd served in the United States Marine Corps before serving in the United States Army as an infantryman, 0311, uh, and then Cav Scout with the Army. Just a man that embodied Texas, strong, resilient, uh, typical Texas draw. Would absolutely rake you over the coals if you weren't disciplined, but at the same time stuck up for you in the face of leadership and bad leadership. He would step in immediately and take the heat. And I remember I respected that so much about him. And what's funny is, even though Carter took his own life um, five years ago, when I think about Carter... I have mostly positive thoughts because he is my drive to light and he is my drive to commit to this project. And he is really what created this deep burning desire to make this the full-time work that it is now. So even in the midst of that darkness and that profound sense of sadness that I feel in watching Nikki and his two kids grow up, without their father, I still feel a sense of motivation and a sense of inspiration by his life. And that's what Memorial Day is all about to me. 
I remember those positive moments. And I know that if I was feeling sorry for myself or I wasn't committed to this work wholeheartedly, he would ask me what I was doing and why I was even doing it. And that's how he was. I remember uh, a certain quote, and I don't think this ever made it into the blog, but I think he's talking to me and asked me. Um, I still remember the sunset over Royce City, Texas, as I was sitting with him in his truck. And he said, so are you, you going to keep doing this? Interviewing us guys and following us around, telling our stories? And I said, yeah, I, I plan on it. <clears throat> we'll see how long the good Lord lets me do it. He said to me, man, can't quit this. We need this. We need to be able to talk to our brothers. I mean, we need to be able to share our memories. Legacy is all we've got at the end of the day. And that last statement stuck with me really profoundly. Legacy is all we've got at the end of the day. And I thought about life being a collection of memories. And this collection of memories is something that we can capture and we can store. And that is really the beauty of the art of storytelling. So, without further ado, I wanted to read another quote. I'm going to read some quotes. I'm going to tell some stories here. I hope you don't mind. I wanted to read a quote from Staff Sergeant Carter Chick. And I asked him about what the hardest thing was from being home, being away from home. And he said, not being there. You miss everything. I got activated in 2004 and it's now 2014. I finally got home full time in 2013. I miss birthdays, anniversaries, baseball games, football games, stuff at school. You realize that, yeah, I'm their dad and husband, but I'm not there. So how good could I be? Yes, my youngest two seven. And I've missed almost all of his life. I'm trying to make up for it now, but what's gone is gone. I can only move forward, and they can only move forward with memories we make now. And, you know, about a year later, he was gone. That quote seems kind of tragic now. But he was dealing with a very heavy thought of not being there for his kids and That's part of the evidentiary sacrifices that we make in choosing a career in the military, choosing a life of war. He made that choice, and it even hurt his family life. And I don't think any American would want that, but there are plenty of men and women out there who are willing to commit to that in order to make our country a safer and better place to instill and to uphold the liberties that we hold so dear. You know, and and then I got into thinking about some of my favorite memories as I, as I sat in the car last night and thought about Alfred Hawes and Paul Merriman. So those are two, two men that I really wanted to make this a tribute to um, beyond Carter. Those are two stories that just continue to blow me away to this day. And those are two men that died soon after I committed to their projects. And I felt those losses the hardest. I think about those guys every single day. There's not a day that goes by on this planet Earth that I don't think about Alfred Haas. And I don't think of Paul Merriman. I think of them often. 
I wanted to read a little bit of this intro to Staff Sergeant Alfred Haw's blog. And then I wanted to relay a few of my favorite stories. Uh, I remember I was on another project. I was covering Jacqueline Carzosa uh, out in Temecula, California, Murrieta, somewhere around there. And I had a friend uh, or a follower of the project call me up and say, hey, man, I got to talk to you really badly. When can you talk? And I said, well, I got a few minutes before I'm on this project, man, but can you make it quick? And he said, yeah, sure. So he called me up. He said, I got a guy who was in the New Mexico National Guard who fought in World War II who was a part of the Baton Death March. First of all, I was like, okay, right there, you can stop. I'm coming right now. <laughs> Baton Death March veteran? Yes, sign me up for that. And at the time, I hadn't done any, I hadn't committed to any World War II projects, so this was going to be a unique um expedition anyways but then what it what he said after that left me just kind of blown away and he started talking about his experiences and saying that his brother was in the camp and that his brothers-in-law were also in the camp and they all died and then that alfred was a amputee lost one of his arms which Back in that day, is pretty rare. You don't meet many living amputees because most of them died on the battlefield due to battlefield medicine being lacking and technology not quite being there. So when he told me about Alfred, I thought, God, this has got to be my next project. Like, i, I got to get to this guy because who knows how long he's going to be around. I mean, at the time, I think he was 99 or 100, living in a nursing home called Autumn's Blessings, I believe, or something like that in Logan, New Mexico, a sleepy old farming town outside of Clovis. And I remember driving out there and it being freezing cold and these very harsh New Mexico eastern plains driving across and nothing really there. But it left me with a lot of time to think. And I thought about the sacrifices and I thought about a man who endured 1,321 days of captivity. And what those sacrifices meant to me personally. So by the time that I had built this massive narrative in my head, of course, by the time I actually stepped in the room, I thought, oh my gosh, there's no way this guy can even live up to this narrative by now. I just developed this whole entire story about how incredible this is going to be. And uh, there's no way he can live up to my thoughts. And boy, was I wrong. As I stepped into that room, I don't know how to explain the feeling. You know, I've met a lot of celebrities, uh, some athletes, some men that are widely respected around the world as entertainers. And yet, I never feel the feeling that I feel with these World War II veterans. I always get chills. I always get nervous. I don't know what to say. I get tongue-tied. Stepping into that room with Alfred was like stepping back in time. And part of it was the journey. Part of it was driving across those bleak New Mexico eastern plains. Uh, you know, part of it was sitting out at the lake in the middle of nowhere, New Mexico. I don't say that disrespectfully to any New Mexicans that live out there, but it's just there's not much going on in that town. It's an old sleepy old farming town. Uh, that has since died due to the industry dying out there. 
but there is something powerful in that, in those moments and sitting there in that environment, that austere environment, and stepping into this old nursing home and walking into a room with an absolute legend. And that's a powerful part of the experience. So I was going to read this intro from my blog with Alfred. I put a match to a Robusto Cuban that I swore I'd only smoke in the most deserving of moments. I gazed out into the pitch black night at the quiet fields outside of my hotel in the West Texas oil town of San Angelo. The thick white smoke trail extending itself from my lips was admittedly harder to see through the tears I no longer held back. I embraced those hot drops as they slid down my cheeks while I took another puff. I wish I'd known my grandpa's brothers before they passed. I saw them on a few occasions, but I never really got to have any meaningful conversations with them about the World War II experiences. I was pretty young when they both passed away. Phil and Joe, CB and an Army veteran, had both been a part of equally vicious campaigns on opposite sides of the world. I can't even say that they would have wanted to bring those memories back up. War is a dreadful thing. Just because it's necessary doesn't mean it get any more glorious, yet... There's always something beautiful about a man that stepped away from the comforts of his home to defend his nation against an enemy he knew nothing about. My thoughts were transfixed on the legend of a man who just made it to his 99th birthday. I had the beautiful privilege of sharing a day with Staff Sergeant Alfred Hawes at his assisted living home in Logan, New Mexico. I think one of my weaknesses as a writer is looking for something acutely profound in each and every story. There's a search for exaggerated depth in every single theme and That was another challenge I faced with Alfred. I expected that in those three years, seven months he spent in a Japanese death camp, that he'd have some deeply obtruse reason for survival. Simple truth was far more beautiful than my own idea of the why. When the bullets start flying, patriotism is the furthest thing from the warrior's mind. Survival is the key. The word Alfred kept using throughout my day with him was the Japanese word for going to work, shigoto. Staff Sergeant Hawes worked to eat and ate to live. 1,321 days of watching his brothers-in-arms go off on details and never come back to the camp. This was only after a grueling 65-mile march widely known as the Bataan Death March. Some of these men were shot in the back of the head, some were burned alive, some starved to death, some stabbed, and some were beaten to death in Alfred's camp. The atrocities Alfred witnessed and was subjected to were mind-numbingly horrific, yet Alfred didn't get into too much detail about what he saw. I think that Staff Sergeant Hawes blocked a lot of these things out in order to save his mind and survive each and every day. 1,321 days being tortured, watching your friends marched off to their deaths, being afraid to even have friends so that you didn't get too emotionally attached, watching your brother die in your arms, starving to death, watching young men as they're driven over with trucks, shot in the back of the head, stabbed to death. On a 65-mile march that would serve as only the beginning of a 1,321-day stay, At a place that could only be mentioned as, at a place that could only be described as the closest thing to hell on earth. 
you know, these memories are profound. And I, I remember, I keep saying remember, Memorial, right? Memorial Day. I think about standing on the stage at Sundance and I was going to go into this kind of technical explanation of what the Veterans Project was and I realized that that really meant nothing in the moment. I remember looking out at the walls and seeing all those portraits and metal portraits that I had experienced over the years before. I say experience because telling those stories is an experience and capturing those men and women's stories. And I looked out at the crowd at Sundance in Park City, Utah, as I got ready to deliver this very technical address on what the Veterans Project was. And I stopped and I thought to myself, no, that's not it. That's not what this is about. Let's relay the experiences of a man like Alfred Hawes. And I stared at his portrait and I thought, so strange, he'd only died a few weeks before and death struck me really hard because I'd just covered him a month before. It was my first World War II project and then there I was and he wasn't there anymore. It was kind of a perfect picture of the fading generation. These men that won't be with us very much longer that are dying at a rate of about 400 a day. And as I stared out at this audience, I thought, my gosh, he would never want to be here. He wouldn't care about any of this. This wouldn't mean anything to him. What meant the most to him was that sleepy old farming town and just making it back. And that's not just some cheesy statement. That was real. That was his identity. That was his home. He just wanted to go home. That's it. He just wanted to survive. He just wanted to make it through every single day in a Japanese torture camp so that he might have one more breath. Survival. His brother being tortured to death. His brothers-in-law being tortured to death. You know, when he got back to his house in Temple, Texas, his mom didn't even recognize him. She passed out from the shock of seeing his frail body as he walked in through the door. You can only imagine the things that he endured every single day in order to have that right to come back home or to have that privilege. I think a great many of us have forgotten what that really means. What it's like to lose that freedom. None of us know. Not anymore. There are very few of us that know what that feeling is like. Most of them are fading away very quickly. Anyways, I remember looking out at the audience and thinking to myself, they don't get it. They don't get it. It wasn't anyone's fault. Uh, it's just part of living in this generation. Unless you were a part of World War II or Vietnam or Korea. and You probably don't know how brutal life can be. You probably had it pretty easy, relatively speaking. Even if you grew up in a bad area, you had it a lot easier than our ancestors before us and especially the greatest generation. We had to endure a terrible flu epidemic, which took out a half of some of people's families, and then, you know, 57 million people on this planet. And then, and this was just off the back of World War I. 
absolutely crushed the world economy, sent us spiraling into a state of depression, and then World War II begins. Millions of dead. Millions and millions dead. Your chance of survival, very small. And Alfred relayed that to me. And so as I stared at this audience at Sundance, I thought, they don't get it. It wasn't their fault. Tell them. Tell them. Explain to them. Explain to them what a day was like with Alfred Hawes. Talk about going to that nursing home. Talk about stepping into the shadow of a legend. Talk about sitting there with him as he was dying. Barely able to even recall some of those memories. Probably not wanting to recall some of them. Tell them. Because all he had before was a quarter page in some Amarillo newspaper that was now decrepit and gone. Now you have a platform. And you have the ability to stand there and talk about what that man went through and what that man endured. I remember uh, speaking to the audience and just... Tears, tears, and tears, and more tears, and uh, uh, shocked, stunned audience. And that experience was so powerful. I was able to share Alfred's story. I was able to get it out there on a platform that he wouldn't have cared about and didn't mean anything to him for his story to be out there. But it means something to us collectively as a nation. If we don't learn, you know, we've heard the, we hear the quote a million times over, but if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat those same mistakes. And part of that is coming into community and speaking those names and speaking about those legacies and speaking about Alfred. Anyways, back to the story. I want to read another quote from, from Alfred. Actually, this will be the first quote I read from him. I asked him the question about survival. And he said, I didn't think about not surviving. I just remember praying to God that if I made it out, I'd dedicate my life to him. The situation was so desperate that I think everyone felt that way, though. I was strong when I got to the prison camp, so I was fortunate. A lot of the guys weren't strong enough and they didn't make it back. Things he must have endured. I asked him about the conditions in the camp. I already relayed one of those quotes to you in the first podcast because I thought it was important to talk about Alfred and, um, you know, this being what the project is all about, legacy. And I asked him what the work conditions were like in Camp O'Donnell, where he lived for 1,321 days. He said, We were held for a while in the first camp and didn't do anything. Then they lined us up and put us to work. Shigoto. Shigoto was the word they always used. The first day, the commander stood up on a table and told us he didn't care if we lived or died. 
we didn't work, they'd pass us around and beat us for a while with clubs. They tied one of our soldiers to a post and beat him with canes throughout the day until he eventually died. You worked whether you wanted to or not. We worked all day and we had little time for breaks. I didn't have that much time to myself. Some of us built aircraft carriers and runways. I was working on a runway. They gave me a shovel and a wheelbarrow and that's all I had. I hauled dirt and filled in the holes to make the runway smooth. I did that for quite a while. I don't remember all that I did after that. I worked in a pit for a while about the size of this dining table. They'd roll out hot sheets of metal and I had a job making sure they stayed in line. My wife's brothers were in that camp. The younger brother, John Moss, was picked to go on a detail and his older brother, Glenn, knew something was going on. A lot of times the guys wouldn't come back from details. He traded places with his younger brother hoping he would save him, but but both of them were sent on the detail. They brought them in a cave and tortured them and killed them. The older brother was shot to death. In the opinion of the Japanese, dying is an honor. Americans obviously don't feel that way about it. The Japanese didn't respect us because of that. The work ethic my parents had instilled in me was what kept me alive during my time in the camp. If they hadn't taught me the value of hard work, I would have died. I can still smell those bodies. It was either work or serious business in the camp. There was no time for laughter. You either worked and ate or didn't work and you were beaten. There wasn't a whole lot of food, but I ate what I could. I remember there was a pile of rice in a field once. They took us out there to shovel that dirty rice. We shoveled it into the truck. We ended up eating that rice. I ate the rice they gave us, but it had rocks in it. They used to dip those rice balls into feces and urine before feeding it to us. They hoped we'd get sick and die so they wouldn't have to deal with us. I had to get dentures because those rocks and the rice balls tore up my teeth. I was scooping the rice up on the truck one time and one of the Japs hit me on the back with a shovel. He hollered, Shigoto! And hit me with it. I didn't think I was working fast enough. It was hard work because we were so unhealthy. Even the easiest work was made hard because we were in bad shape. I could probably do more work now than I could have then. The Japanese were so mean. They didn't care if we lived or died. I saw some guys get beat up every single day. I remember they sat one of the guys on the side of the bank after he dug a hole and they shot him and then put his body in the hole. He literally dug his own grave. Man. Wow. Chills. I I never can get over these stories. I mean, I've read that story 1,000 times at least. And I never get over it. And as I scroll past these pictures of Glenn's grave and John Moss's grave, both who died in 1942, uh, I'm just both who both who died in Bataan, just absolutely blown away. Another uh, powerful quote from Alfred talking about the nuke that went off over Nagasaki. On August 8th, 1945, I was a member of a 43-man detail who were assigned to work in the Tabata Steel Mills located about 15 miles south of Moji. At approximately 9.40 a.m., the air sirens blew and we were given a 30-minute break. None of our detail went into the shelters because the Japanese didn't let us. It was a policy of the Japanese to keep all POW details working, even after the sirens started. 
About five minutes later, the bomb started exploding. Though none of us could hear the planes overhead because of the noise of the mill. I was hit at 10 a.m. and my arm was severed at the shoulder. None of the Japanese guards or pushers, as we called them, were around to administer first aid, so I had to apply a tourniquet myself. It was not until five hours later that the Japanese furnished me any treatment, and it was poorer than which I had improvised. Eight hours after I'd been hit, an American doctor gave me help, but I was almost dead by this time. He was forced to hold me down and hack it off at the shoulder. I came back and I was 97 pounds when I got to Brigham City, Utah. I remember the Americans came to get me. I was as excited as anybody could be. I knew when the bomb at Nagasaki went off that I was going to be free. I was there when the bomb went off. They told me you couldn't live through something like that, but I lived through it. I remember the colors. There was red, green, and yellow in those waves. I was on the ground when it went off. First thing they told you was to lay flat on the ground. Saw the bomb over Nagasaki's. It went off. My gosh. Can't make this up. You know, I could I could speak all day about Alfred, uh, but I wanted to use this time to also address another friend of mine, Paul Merriman. He was a PFC with the 5th Marine Division, 28th Regiment, who fought on Iwo Jima. And uh, Paul, Paul since passed as well. Uh, he passed probably two months after I did his project or finished his project. I remember uh, he called me after I was done with it, and he said, Boy, i got to say, I think this is the best thing that's ever been written about me, and that says a lot because there's been a lot written about me. <laughs> yeah, what an honor. And uh, he actually made it into books. His project, he had it all printed out and made it into books for his whole entire family. So I've got to talk to them and see if they have those because I would love to see one of those books. But they turned that whole project into a tangible display that they could hold and um, pass around to family. And that's what it's about, legacy. They're passing those legacies around. Paul Merriman. I can still hear that air conditioning click on and off as I sat in that room with that legend in Houston, Texas. And looking at the white walls covered in all the nothing but Iwo Jima material. A man who is extremely grateful to have been afforded the opportunity to come home, uh, as so many of those men didn't. And I remember one of the most profound experiences that I've relayed many times to many people was sitting in that room with a veteran of the 5th Marine Division and hearing him speak about his experiences on Iwo Jima, but then hearing him speak about experiences and coming home and meeting the love of his life. And I remember I asked him a question. There's one image of him powerful. That's very powerful of him sitting there and staring out a window. As I asked him to look out that window and think about his wife, think about his favorite memories with her. And the image that I captured, uh, there, there's a photo in back behind him of their wedding day, which I can't imagine what that cost because back then photography was pretty limited uh, in technology and means, but they have this massive image blown up of them 
on the wall behind him, him and his wife as they were just married. I could tell how proud he was of her and that marriage. And I asked Paul, I don't remember the exact question, but I do remember the question was related to his service and what the hardest time in his life was. Expecting fully that it would be about his experiences on Iwo Jima, and it wasn't. And that was so powerful. I asked him what the hard, what the toughest experience for him in life was, and he said to me, oh, well, that's easy. I don't have the words uh, here, quote, quote, word for word, but I remember him speaking about his wife getting lost on the freeway and getting lost in Houston after she developed Alzheimer's, and she forgot where she was, and her calling him frantic and lost, and how he felt so hopeless, and he didn't know what to do in that moment. And then talking about coming back into his apartment and having her attack him, scratching and clawing at him because she thought he thought she thought he was a home intruder because she was forgetting who he was. He said, "You know, any harder than any day on Iwo Jima." was watching my wife lose her memory and forget who I was and forget who the kids was. When she died, it was a blessing because I didn't have to endure her forgetting who I was anymore. I thought that was such a powerful moment, and I remember I had him stay there and think about his best memory. I took that shot, and then I said, Paul, you can you can turn back to me. It's, I took the shot. And he said, no, young man, I think I'll stay here for a second more with her. That's Memorial Day. That's Memorial Day. Paul has since passed. That moment is Memorial Day. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget sitting in that room with a legend of Iwo Jima, but a man who went on to do some incredible things after. And that's what it's about. It's about the individual. It's about the individual legacy and the life lived. I've got some quotes here that I want to share with you from Paul Merriman. Uh, in those days on Iwo Jima and talking about some of the things that he experienced. He said, when I asked him about the battle, uh, about his time on the island, he said, I was there for 20 days and we were there for 36 total, so I almost made it. (laughs) Out of my outfit, which was 139 guys, two walked off that island on their own power. The other 137 were wounded or killed. It was complete chaos. We were a pretty good team when we started out but things got pretty tough as soon as we hit the beach. I remember my buddies every single day. I actually owe my life to one of the guy's bodies that was there with me. He was dead, and he fell across me, and that shielded me from a lot of the bullets and shrapnel coming in. His name was Alfred Sicicelli. A couple years years ago, I Googled his family and found them. I found his family in Pennsylvania, and I called them up and told them what happened to him. I think that gave him some closure. They sent me their letters and pictures. They were just so happy. Because to them, he just disappeared on Iwo Jima. I was able to tell them he died and that he died honorably, most likely saving my life. Wow. You just don't hear stories like that anymore. I mean, a man he barely knew kept him alive, even after death. And Paul never forgot that. And you know, I think Paul talked about Alfred Sicicelli probably 10 times in our interview. Alfred Sicicelli's name lives on because of Paul Merriman and because of the other men that remember him. That legacy is carried on. Now others know that story. 
when I asked him about what what it was like to see the flag go up over Iwo Jima, he said, the flag went up on the fourth day and we battled for 36 days. When we saw that flag go up, we thought it was all over. We were celebrating and so proud. We all became real Marines that day. Really, though, the battle had just begun. I stayed on the beach for four and five more days. Part of our duty was then to go up to the front lines or get as close as we could and get our dead. We'd pick them up with a stretcher. Four of us would go up there, put them on a stretcher, and try to get them back without getting shot. The Japanese, of course, were always watching this because they were in the higher country. It was, strange. It was always awkward because they could see our every movement. We'd duck and hide a while, find a guy, cover him up with his own poncho, and put him on the stretcher. Then we'd carry him. When we'd carry him, there were four guys on a stretcher. Rigor mortis had set in. On one particular guy we picked up, and when we carried him, his hand would fall and clinch your arm if you were on that particular handle. Well, we had a thing where one of our guys would get tired, and he would holler, Rotate! As soon as that hand would fall and clinch that particular Marine's arm, he'd yell out, Rotate! It was so spooky. I remember that really well. The first days were tough, because that's when guys started dying, but you tried to stay busy so you didn't have time to think about it. You didn't have much time to feel bad. So at a certain point, they needed six more guys at the front lines, and they came down and got me as one of those replacements. At the time, I was new in the battle. I remember we joined a company that was just barely off the front line. We were gathered in this little thing that looked like an amphitheater made out of rock. The platoon leader introduced me, and he was the nicest, most pleasant southern boy. He'd already seen a lot of action at Guadalcanal. He had this big smile and loud draw. We looked up to him because he'd already been in battle. We told him, tell us what to do. He said, you're going to put... We're going to put three of you in each hole. Tonight the Japs will probably come in here, so take out your K-bar, stick it in the side of the wall in your hole. When they come in, you pull the knife of the wall and stab that Jap. He showed us the proper motion for a good clean puncture. We looked at him like he was crazy and said, What? (laughs) That was pretty scary to us. The Japanese started running out of water and food. We'd pile up jerry cans of water to lure them in so we could kill them when they took the water. We'd get up in the morning and nobody had seen a jab and there would be 12 cans completely gone. <laughs> I remember that particular first night, though. There was only one way that you, they could get into your hole. Sure enough, they came into our cave that night. I woke up. There was a lot of shouting. There were like 10 Japanese hollering with their grenades clinched tight, jumping into our holes. I had a bar and my bar was set up to point towards the entrance. The bar is an automatic weapon. When I'd woken up, one of the Japs tripped over the front of my bar, but he didn't completely fall. He was falling and tripping, and so he was going to fall, but he kept tripping as he fell. While he was going down, one of our guys, Doc Savage, who was one of those Marines we called Salty, shot him eight times before he hit the ground. I'd never heard a Garen go off like that. I had no clue you could do that with an M1. I saw that and was like, whoa, that guy is good. The Japanese killed our corpsman and killed our captain. There was chaos everywhere. One of our Marines was shooting, and the other guy next to him was throwing a grenade, and I remember trying to identify the Japanese and where they were. It was complete chaos. finally got quiet, and we're just wondering who's dead and who's alive. It got really quiet, and the Southern Marine says in almost his stage voice to Doc Savage, Did you get him, Doc? Doc says, very matter of fact, Yep. I'll never forget that. The next morning, our armorer walks in, bashes one of the dead Jap's teeth in. He reached into the mouth and pulled out those gold teeth and put them in a bag full of them. We had one guy who collected ears, who wore Japanese ears around his neck. We had one guy named Murphy who'd go out at night with just his K-bar between his teeth. He'd leave his rifle in the hole and just go out by himself at night. He'd holler to each other, Don't shoot! Murphy's going out! 
He'd leave the hold and come back later that night, and we'd shout again, Murphy's coming back in, don't shoot! He'd come back covered in blood. He'd kill Japanese soldiers at night and come back and act like nothing had happened. I thought he was crazy. When we got to Japan as occupation troops, Murphy immediately disappeared and came back wearing Japanese clothes. The whole time we were occupying Japan, he wore their clothes and he was always gone. I had no idea what he was doing. Up until those moments, he was just like you and me. I don't know what happened, but something snapped in his mind. I don't really know what happened to him after that. That was one of the more entertaining stories, although I I wouldn't say more because Paul had a full collection of stories that he shared, uh, including being shot in the head and uh, blowing up with a Japanese pineapple grenade, which is what forced him off the island after 20 days of combat. And we're talking about can't-eat-can't-sleep type of combat where you're battling every single day for hours and hours and hours on end, barely able to sleep. You're in that kind of hallucination state where you don't know what's real and what's dreamland. You're just trying to stay awake so you can stay alive. I asked Paul about life and death and combat, and, you know, I like to get to some of the more hard topics, I guess, when I get to know the guys a little better. So I wanted to hear Paul speak on it himself about what that was like, and he said, I was never really afraid on Iwo Jima. I didn't really suffer from PTSD at any point in my life either. I was shocked like anyone else by the speed of battle. I saw a lot of guys die. I went to a movie right before the war started called Tarawa, They showed those bodies in the movie of our GIs, and that was the first time we started to start really realize our guys were dying. This actually started some protesting throughout the nation. A lot of people don't think anyone protested World War II, but they definitely did. It was a big deal. I remember seeing those dead guys in the movie, and I wonder how I would handle it when it came time for me to see it. Sure enough, I landed in Iwo Jima, and there were some dead Marines on the beach. I thought to myself, well, there's my first dead Marine. What am I going to do? I didn't let it bother me. What can you do? It's part of being in war. Could have happened to me at any moment. Wow. The recognition, the reality of knowing that any moment could be your last in combat. We're talking about 139 guys he hit that beach with and 137 being killed or wounded, two walking off on their own power. It's not just a cliche statement to say that it could have happened at any moment. It definitely could have happened at any moment. I asked him about his experiences of coming home. It's very interesting. I had a quote from Alfred about this, and I I, I don't have it here in front of me, but he said something to the effect that coming back was extremely difficult, uh, that he did not feel that anybody cared about his experiences. He felt lost. Uh, He felt like he just wanted to get back to normal life and didn't want to talk about the war, but mostly that people didn't really care that he'd fought, which is interesting. And it shows you the profound differences in our experiences in returning home, because Paul says something completely different. He said, I felt just the opposite of detachment when I got home. I was welcomed home with open arms. We came back to the girlfriends we'd been writing to, the moms that cooked for us before we left, and we were focused on getting a job. Having a job was such a huge thing. I went back to work at General Electric, and most of us were veterans, One guy had been shot down over Sicily. One guy had been a general. One guy had fought in the Battle of the Bulge. Then you get back and you're working alongside each other. So your stories didn't mean anything. Everyone had stories. You were just another guy when you got back. I might have had a Purple Heart and served in the Battle of Iwo Jima, but there were other guys with their own tough situations over there. Your record in the military didn't mean anything to the other guy next to you. We didn't respect or disrespect each other. 
We both had been there, so there was nothing to brag about. We didn't really talk about it. Something else I hear nowadays, my dad fought in the war, but he didn't want to talk about it. I have an answer for that. He did want to talk about it, but you didn't want to truly listen. We came home, and of course we wanted to talk about it. Some of the things I'm telling you right now are so bizarre that they probably don't even seem possible. They didn't believe me when I talk about combat. It was insulting when their eyes would glaze over and I could tell they didn't think I was telling the truth. So it made me want to shut down. That's why guys don't like to talk about it. We stopped talking because of that. Now that you come here and show me respect, it makes me want to talk to you. My daughter said a while back, my father would never talk about the war, but he found his division at the reunions and now he won't shut up. (laughs) Oh, memory, man. You know, I, I remember uh, we were, part of the day, we were at Red Robin. He he really wanted to go to Red Robin. Like, he, that was his favorite place to go. I think he said he went there almost every day. But Red Robin was like his thing. And you got to understand that uh, Paul was uh, extremely uh, successful after. Many, many people that know Iwo Jima veterans know Paul Merriman. Uh, but he was extremely successful. He went on to own a company called Hisco, uh, Houston Industrial Supply Company. And he took it from a company that was $100,000 in debt and turned it into a $240 million company. I mean, 48 states, two different countries, uh, from a basically supply office in Houston, Texas. Uh, Moved from Pennsylvania down there. Bought the company, uh, I believe, for a dollar. Anyways, he he, uh, he was. we were at Red Robin and he was starting to relate some of these stories to me. And uh, Paul just had a tremendous sense of humor. He was very professional, very polite. And I think from some of these quotes, it almost doesn't get capture, capture his tone properly because he sounds a little bit, I don't want to say bitter, but a little angry, a little frustrated. But Paul is not a frustrated guy. He's very matter of fact uh, and, and, and very kind. Uh, but some of his quotes, I think he was getting to really, I was just letting him speak on some of the things that he wanted to talk about. So he was very almost brutally honest which you experience a lot with these World War II generation guys. I was I was talking to him, um, and he kept watching the waitress walking back and forth, which was funny because I, I didn't know if he knew her or what the deal was. But she walked up to our table and was like, y'all ready to order? And uh, Paul said, yeah, I'm ready to order, but first I got a question for you. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, oh, here we go. <laughs> And by then, I I realized that he probably had her at his table a lot. And he said, when are you coming home with me? (laughs) Oh, Paul Merriman, you are a national treasure. You are missed. And uh, as she walked away from the table, I was like, Paul. I was like, whoa. That was very aggressive. And he said to me, you know, he said, you know what they say? He said, first of all, you know, I might be almost dead, but I'm not yet. And once a Marine, always a Marine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Paul Merriman. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's little personal experiences like that that make the project what it is and make those memories so profound. I can remember that for the rest of my life, that moment, and just that little moment. Uh, and it really makes the individual who he is. Great sense of humor. Uh, anyways, that story that I was telling you in a minute ago about his experiences at GE, 
uh, General Electric and buying that company that he turned into Hisco. Very powerful. I want to tell a story uh, to, to kind of relate that and relate the human side, the, the human element to this project, the individual element of this project, not just being about war, being a lot about reintegration as well. Paul said, I was working at GE for a while when I came back from the war. My boss didn't like me for some reason. He was just a narcissist. He was one of those guys that actually believed some of the crazy things that would come out of his mouth. <laughs> this is so much like Paul. It was his world, and you were just living in it. I started to realize I was eventually going to be fired. He's making complaints about me and going out of his way to make trouble for me. I thought to myself, this isn't healthy, and I have a wife and seven children to take care of. I was scared about the prospect of losing my job. He told me I could buy his other company. He didn't think I was serious when I told him I wanted to buy it. He asked for 10000 Next day, he was up on the beach, and I was up for my run. I was jogging along the beach, and he saw me and said, You son of a bitch, if you can run in that sand, you can probably run that company. You can have it. I went down to visit the office in Houston. It was a nice little office with two employees where Minute Maid Park is now. I got back on an Eastern Airlines plane after I'd visited the offices, and I met a guy who was a lawyer on that plane ride. I told him what I was up to, and he said to me, Do not give that man $10,000 for crying out loud. I told him, Well, he's my old boss, and even though he's crazy, I still consider him a friend, so I have to pay him what I told him I'd pay him. He said, No, 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 that's over. You need to think about your children and your family. You can't go in there thinking about how much you like him as a friend. I said, What should I tell him? He replied, Tell him you're going to give him a dollar. You have to pray and make it work. So when I sat down to settle the contract, my boss was there with his attorney. We were in Baltimore. We were all sitting in a hotel room, and my boss says, You ready to sign? Did you bring the money? I said, Dick, I'm not going to give you $10,000. He said, Now what? We had a deal, Paul. What are you doing to me? I said, I'm not going to give you $10,000. I'm not going to give you, I'm going to give you a dollar. He scoffed, oh, that's rich. You're going to give me a dollar? I said, yep. He said, that's crazy. I told him, that doesn't mean nothing to you. $10,000 is going to kill me. I have a family I have to support. I turned on the act really hard and said, you're just a cheap guy looking to make a buck and my life's on the line here. My family's life is on the line. He looked at me like I was crazy and said, what the hell's gotten into you? I walked out of that office with a new company and a dollar less. <laughs> I remember a long time after that, that old boss of mine said to me, Paul, I taught you everything. I replied, you taught me what to never do. He used to tease, he used to tease and say that he wanted to spend his last dollar as he fell into the grave. He had six children and two marriages. He went to the doctor in Pittsburgh and his doc said he had very bad cancer. He went to one of his kid's husbands who was also a doctor and asked for a secondary opinion. That doctor told him the same thing. He got in his car, drove down the road, and overdosed on pills. He was extreme. The company was in a lot of debt when I showed up, and they had only two employees. I just showed up to work every day and treated customers right. I stayed in the office for three or four months. Finally, one of the kids in the office said, you got to get out and see the customers. So I jumped in the car and started seeing customers. That's how I turned the company around. I talked to employees about the importance of we and not me. I bought that company for $1, and it's now worth about $200 million. Gradually sold the company back to employees through the stocks I owned. And and 
Paul went on like that for a while with little life lessons. That was one of my favorite things about Mr. Merriman was sitting there in those moments and him explaining something to me and then being able to relay the story back to that moment, being able to create a real teachable lesson. That, that is something we don't do nearly as well now. And it's probably just because we don't have the experiences. But these men are able to take real uh, lessons from the battlefield and then transfer that uh, to something that applies now. And I want to tell one of those stories because it's very important to me. I asked Paul about some of life's greatest lessons, and this was one of the stories he told me. He said, there was a machine gunner firing on our position on Iwo Jima. Our corporal, Corporal Unger, said to me and two other guys, you three go around and try to attack him from the side. We said, okay. We found a ridge to hide behind. I decided to be the first guy to look up over the ridge. I just remember feeling like I was beaten over the head by a baseball bat. I saw colors and I saw nothing. My hearing was completely gone. I thought to myself, I'm dead. I was lying there and thinking, this is heaven or hell or I'm on my way. There was silence and blackness. Pretty soon I thought I heard someone yell out, Merryman, you all right? I thought to myself, ah, guess I'm alive. I got up, saw my helmet, and realized the cloth cover had been ripped off my helmet. What had happened was the bullet hit right in front of me and ricocheted off my helmet and knocked me out, flipped me sideways. After that moment, I would never stick my head above a ridge to see what was going on. I'd always stick my bayonet under my helmet and push that up over the ridge line. I learned my lesson. We had an instance where Corporal Unger came to us after we were trying to take some ground. There's a rock some distance away from our position. He said to us, okay, guys, I want you to run and hide behind that rock while we give you some covering fire. One of our guys ran out there, and he got about halfway out while we were giving him cover fire, and he got shot dead in his tracks. So he's laying out there dead now. Corporal Unger looks at the guy next to me and says, ah, hell, well, you try it now. That guy runs out and he gets halfway to the rock and gets shot dead too. Now we've got two dead Marines out there. I remember seeing him look at me and I thought, he's going to tell me to go out there. The other two just got shot dead. That didn't matter to me at all, though. I thought, if he tells me to go, I'll go. I had to fulfill, I had to fulfill my duties as a Marine. Looking back, I think to myself, what was I thinking? The truth of the matter was... He was the authority figure, and I was to do what I was told. I'd officially bought into the Marine Corps program. I knew I was on that island to do those kinds of things. I was not afraid to do just as those men who died weren't. I thought, I have a job to do, and I'm going to do that damn job. Duty. Duty is an interesting thing. But Corporal Unger looked at me and said, Hell, this ain't working. I got off and didn't have to go. I also remember looking at him and thinking, He's sending people to die. I just remember the thought crossing my mind. I could never be a corporal. I could never send men to their deaths. Later in my life, I had a very important job as a company president where I hired and fired a lot of people. I had a lot of responsibility in that position. So it was kind of ironic that I found myself in a position of leadership, something I swore I could never do. I remember my company, we had a guy in El Paso who was always drunk. We traveled to Mexico on business and he'd drink some more. Our guy in San Antonio would say, Mr. Merriman, you need to put our guy from El Paso in treatment. I said to him, that's none of my business. That's between him and his family. He looked back at me and said, no, you're the boss. It's your responsibility. I said, nope, that's not my job. I'll fire him, but I'm not going to put him in a rehab clinic. Guy from San Antonio said, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting to get a phone call where you find out he killed a couple women and kids in a car wreck? Is that what you want? So I grudgingly flew out to El Paso and told the guy who was always drinking that he had to come with me. I took him all the way back to Houston. He kept saying to me, Paul, you're making a big mistake. I replied, you're doing this or you're fired. You need the job and I need you working for me. 
I love you, buddy. This is for you. He said back, this is bull. This is wrong. I said, please just do it for me. We were both crying when I brought him into the rehab facility. You know, he never forgave me for that. He never accepted it. He came right out of the clinic and drank more. I lost that friendship. If I could go back, I'd do it the same, though. I fulfilled my duty. That was something I'd learned on that island years before from Corporal Hunger. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Man, sharing life experiences. What a powerful, what a powerful lesson. You know, collectively, I'd like to say those two stories mean so much to me. Uh, you know, I could go on for days about Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam, and all the incredible experiences that I've had. Memory. And really, my drive to light started with Carter Chick and his suicide. Really started in that rural Texas field where the sheriff found him. And uh, that's not lost on me. That's where my Memorial Day really started, and that's where my drive to light really started with this project. And even though that was a horrible, tragic moment, horrible and tragic for his family, since become my drive to make this an effort of legacy capturing where we never forget the stories of Carter Chick. I thought to myself after that moment when I heard about Carter killing himself, I thought, what if I hadn't told his story? What if I hadn't asked him those questions? What if we hadn't captured his legacy? Would it be out there? Would anyone know? Or would it just be a collection of small stories that other soldiers, other Marines knew, but never really put together? I know the answer to that. And I know that it would be a collection of stories that we probably would never see together. And probably a lot of things that I wouldn't know, even being as close to him as I was. Still, taking the time and being intentional in your efforts with uh, the, the required amount of empathy, which there can never be enough empathy in storytelling. And that's really what Memorial Day is all about, right? Remembering those legacies. Not feeling sorry. Not feeling sad. But respecting the legacy, knowing that there's not possibly anything you could do to properly honor that person's memory. As Nate Boyer so profoundly put it yesterday and one of the quotes that I shared from him was uh, about his experience uh, on Memorial Day and how it was about life, about living your life uh, in dutiful regard to the person who served and living the best life that you can and realizing you only have one life and that those men and women went out there for you so that you could have those moments, you could have that wonderful chance of freedom. That's a very profound thing. But when people ask me what I think about Memorial Day, this is what I think about. I think about Carter. I think about Alfred. I think about Paul. I think about a whole collection and litany of other names. Um, some of my friends, some of my closest men. Just one more story that I'll relay to you before we go. And send you into your Memorial Day thinking about uh, maybe who's most important to you. You know, my friend Jesse and I, we, we did this project that was just uh, incredible. It was on a man named Doc Hazard, Gordon Hazard, actually, but they call him Doc because he was a veterinarian after his time in service in World War II. He was a lieutenant uh, commander, ended up being a commander in the Battle of the Bulge. And uh, I remember just, I'm writing his story right now, so I can't share all the details, but just combat upon combat upon combat. I mean, 
I, I want to say 129 straight days in combat on the front lines. His unit experienced the 79th Infantry Division. This is a record in World War II. And he ended up coming off the line for eight days and then having to go back for 82 more days in straight combat. I mean, you're talking about every kind of story that you would ever want to hear and in, in, in an action-packed World War II chronicle. Uh, something that, if done properly, would be even more powerful than Saving Private Ryan. Absolutely mind-blowing. Some of the stories that Doc Hazard told. And, you know... There's one book, I think it's in the Mississippi State Library, that he wrote. And, 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 and sure, it has been honored by many Mississippians alike. Um, but I didn't even know about this man before I met him. I had no clue. He was Jesse's childhood hero, my friend Jesse Phillips, who's a, a Marine and, and a storyteller in his own right. And I didn't know anything about this man. I knew nothing. Jesse's childhood hero. I mean, he was an absolute stud of a man. I mean, his story was so incredibly impactful and then I found myself there one day because Jesse told me man you got to tell this guy's story dude you got to do a project on him like I it would mean a lot to me uh, we're doing a movie on him but I, I want you to share his story and I remember sitting there uh, on that cool spring day uh, with with a legend and you know he had his dip cup out <laughs> I think it was like 90 I think it was 94 at the time I mean you know but he he did not care <laughs> And, and the emotionally impactful moments of that day were, first of all, spending time with one of my best friends and getting to tell someone's story and Jesse just having this profound amount of respect uh, that's necessary to do this and just shutting up when you're supposed to shut up and listening when you're supposed to listen, uh, which is most of the time, and, and Doc just relaying these incredible stories. But one of the most powerful moments uh, that I'll share was sitting on that porch as the wind blew and the flag over Doc's head, and uh, just a powerful portrait. And Doc was holding the Nazi helmet or German helmet from one of his first kills of an SS officer, and uh, he was holding the swastika chain in his hands. And uh, I remember we, we asked him what that feeling was like when he realized that we'd won the war. And he was back on leave. He was sent home because he had enough points to go home early. And they found out that the Japanese had surrendered and the war was over. And as he spoke on it, he uh, began to tear up. You know, something amazing when somebody that has gone through those absolutely horrific experiences in combat for the greater good, for the blood wall that we hold so dear that contains those freedoms. There's something so powerful about a man like that shedding tears. Somebody, some hard charger like that has probably cried a collective ten times in his life, sitting there and shedding tears. I remember said simply, he simply said, we won. And he started to cry. And I looked at Jesse, and he was in tears, and I was in tears. I could barely look through the lens and take a photo, but I did. I was able to capture one. You guys will see that in his project, Doc's project, which is coming out soon. I remember those chills. Freedom. 
freedom. He was responsible for that freedom. Those men who had gone over there were responsible for that freedom. And Doc leading that company of men into battle, the Siegfried line, horrifying combat conditions. Men screaming in the middle of the night for their mothers in no man's land. And Doc, finally, all that being somehow worth it. Somehow worth it for you, somehow worth it for me. Don't know where you find that because experiencing that much death and loss of life has got to leave a man feeling a bit jaded. But he was able to find beauty in that moment. And that's truly powerful. So what does Memorial Day mean to me? Memorial Day is that moment. Memorial Day is the testamental sacrifice that is made and we hold that dear. We hold that close to our hearts. We hold that close to our souls. That inalienable right, freedom, we are granted and we never lose that. We never lose that legacy because if we lose that legacy, we lose the lessons. We give up those freedoms. And men like that, it would be a crying shame to give that up when men like that were willing to do what they did for you and me. Don't forget, most importantly of all, on this Memorial Day, our legacies are the mission.